Before I pray, I have to say that there is a disagreement among really good Christian scholars as to whether or not John actually recorded the story we're about to study in his original autograph. Now, as most of you know, we don't have the original scrolls of the New Testament books. They're lost. But we do have a plethora, we do have an abundance of early manuscripts of the New Testament uh, books. And um, by the way, in case you didn't know this, regarding the New Testament, as far as how many, we have way more early manuscripts than any other piece of ancient, list, uh, uh, ancient literature in all of history. So, the reason there's a disagreement about our story today is because the earliest manuscripts that we have, all right, so we have the original autographs, they're lost, but then we have these early manuscripts. Those early manuscripts don't include the story that we're gonna teach today. But the later manuscripts, which is the majority of Greek manuscripts, they do include this story. So even if the story wasn't originally uh, recorded by John in his gospel, there's really little reason to doubt whether or not it actually occurred. I, for one, believe this is a true story. It absolutely occurred, and it can have a powerful impact on our lives if we will allow it to do so. And so I've been thinking about all this this week, and I was considering whether or not do I really you know, share in depth and explain this scholarly um, uh, difference of opinion. And here's what I decided. I decided that both the story and its application to our lives is way too important for me to spend the amount of time it would take me um, dealing with the scholarly disagreement. But if you want to go deeper yourself into this topic, have you guys heard there's a great website out there called gotquestions.org? And so um, they have a good article, Does John 7.53 through 8.11 Belong in the Bible? So that's a good article, but more important, I really want you to read the second article, and that is, Is the Bible Reliable? And ladies and gentlemen, here's what you need to know if you're thinking about making Calvary PSL your church home, that we absolutely, wholeheartedly, passionately believe that this is God's word breathed out by God. It is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is authoritative for our lives. And so I'll encourage you to read those articles, everybody say the word later, because some of you guys are already looking it up. And I really want you to hear the message, okay? So just, just read it later, and then you can go deeper in the topic yourself. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll ask his blessing on our time together. And so Father, we are just thankful this morning. We come to you with an attitude of gratitude. Like it says in the scriptures, we enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. And even if things have gone wrong this past week, help us, Father, to put all that on pause, to adjust our attitudes, and to realize that you are sovereign and you're in control of all things and that you love us. Lord, we're asking that you would speak to us by your spirit today on our level um, as adults, but next door as well with the kids as they learn about Jesus and the word of God on their level. So we thank you uh, for your presence with us today, and we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. All right, so two weeks ago, if you were with us, um, I taught you and we read that Jesus on the last day, the great day of the feast, of the Feast of Booths, he stood up and he literally shouted. He cried out, and I quote, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He said, whoever believes, you remember in the, in the Greek, that's personal trust. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And somebody says, well, what's he talking about? Well, more specifically and accurately, who is he talking about? And Jesus told us who he's talking about in the very next verse in John 7, 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, day of Pentecost, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so from those verses two weeks ago, we concluded that the Holy Spirit does not just want to indwell born-again believers. No, more importantly, what he wants to do is that he wants to flow like a river from our lives. Metaphorically speaking, right? He wants his power, he wants his love, he wants his wisdom, he wants his blessing to pour out from our lives. Somebody says, why? Because he wants us to minister to other people. He wants to make an impact through us for the cause of Christ. One of the points that we emphasized during that message was that our greatest capacity is not just to be human vessels that contain the Holy Spirit, but to also become human vessels through which the Holy Spirit's power and blessing flows through us to bless others. And so metaphorically speaking, it's not enough to just say, hey, praise the Lord, I got living water inside of me. And that's great, right? But more importantly, we should be saying, praise the Lord, because living water is flowing out of me like a river to impact other people's lives. And so Ephesians 5.18, Paul, writing to Christians who were already indwelt by the Holy Spirit, said, and I quote, continue to be filled with the Spirit. Well, they were already indwelt. What more do they need? They needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you put Ephesians 5.18 with John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39 about the Holy Spirit flowing, then here's what you come up with. You come up with somebody, and by the way, this doesn't happen unless you surrendered every area of your life to the Lord, emptying yourself of yourself. But when you put the two passages together, what do you have? You have someone in the morning or in the evening or whenever is asking the Lord, Lord, please, please <clears throat> fill me to overflowing with your spirit so that you can do whatever you want to do through my life today and impact as many people as you want to impact. That's the idea. And so if you have never come to a place of full surrender to the Lord so that the Holy Spirit can fill you to overflowing Man, let today be the day of complete surrender in your life. Your life will never be the same afterwards. If you missed the message two weeks ago, it's called Rivers of Living Water. It's on our website. It's from July 17th. Now, after the Feast of Booths, what happened is that everybody went home, but Jesus went to one of his favorite places, and that place is called the Mount of Olives. And so please look at the last verse in chapter seven, which is verse 53, and if you're not finding it, it's because in most Bibles, it's under chapter eight. Okay, and so verse 53, it says they, in the context, that's the religious leaders who were kind of mocking Nicodemus. We covered that two weeks ago. They, the religious leaders, went each to his own house. So they're lying down in their comfy beds. But Jesus went to the what? Mount of Olives. He heads east, he goes down the Kidron Valley, he goes up the Mount of Olives, and apparently he spends the night under an olive tree. Verse two, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So after the Feast of Booths, Jesus returns to the temple, and he begins to teach. As he's teaching, there's a crowd that begins to gather. I want you to just kind of picture the scene. He's sitting down, he's teaching, more and more people are coming, 50, 100, 200, I have no idea. But they're coming. And they're listening to what Jesus has to say. But then in the middle of his message, something unexpected happens. Look at verse three. It says that the scribes 
and the Pharisees, religious leaders, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. By the way, everybody look at me real quick. This is why we have an amazing children's ministry next door for infants through fifth graders so they can learn the Bible on their level because sometimes the Bible's R-rated. So the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So again, picture the scene. There's Jesus. He's sitting down. He's teaching a large crowd when all of a sudden there's a big ruckus over here somewhere and all of a sudden these guys are interrupting his message by forcing a woman into the midst. You say, why forcing? Because here's what I know. She did not want to be there. She did not want what she had just done to be publicly broadcasted to a bunch of religious people on the outer courts of the temple. And so I wonder, since she didn't want to be there, how did the religious leaders get her to go with them there? Did they tie her wrist behind her back and push her? Did they drag her into the midst of the crowd? Listen, I've been studying these religious leaders for decades. Neither one of those scenarios would surprise me at all. These guys were pompous, they were arrogant, they were filled with themselves, uh, they were pious, they were smug, they were self-righteous, and man, if I could think of anything else, I'd keep naming names. Because that's who we're dealing with. This is who Jesus had to deal with. These guys are always hounding him wherever he goes. They hate Jesus. They're jealous of Jesus. They're envious of Jesus. Why? Because crowds would come around Jesus. That means crowds are going away from them. And so, that's what's happening here. And with smug looks on their faces, because Jesus lost the crowd by this point. Everybody's turned their attention, right, to this distraught, embarrassed, humiliated woman. And so a smug looks on their faces. They say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And then they said to Jesus in verse five, now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And right now they're thinking, yes, we finally got him. And trying to stump him, trying to alienate the crowd from him, trying to embarrass him, no way he's gonna be able to answer this one without alienating at least part of the crowd. Now before we get to that, it's true that under the old covenant, can you guys please say old covenant? Under the old covenant, if an Israelite committed adultery, they faced the death penalty. We see that in Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. I want you to notice that under the law of Moses, both the adulterer and the adulteress would receive the death penalty. So what I'm wondering right now, which I'm sure you're wondering right now, is there's the woman, humiliated, embarrassed, probably with her eyes closed, trembling, maybe laying in the dirt. But where's the man? Where's the guy who had sex with her? As they say, it takes two to tango, right? Where is he? So the question is, is this all a big setup? And I think the answer to that question is found in the first half of verse six. This they said to, please say the next word, two words out loud. Test him. There's your motive right there. They're trying to trap Jesus. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. The motive of the religious leaders was to trap Jesus, so it's obvious that this is all a big setup. 
And so how did they do it? Well, since it would be virtually impossible, right, to accidentally stumble upon a couple in a private situation committing adultery, the way they did it is that they sent spies into the room because it's not enough if someone's facing the death penalty under the law of Moses, it's not enough just to see two people coming out of a room together. They had to actually witness the actual event to confirm the deed. And then afterwards, they grabbed the woman and they conveniently, apparently, let the guy go. So again, we're wondering if he was in on it. And so here's what you need to know. Time and time again, the religious leaders tested Jesus. They're trying to get him to say something. They're trying to get him to say anything that'll trap him, that'll alienate people away from him. And so what were they trying to do in this situation? If you're listening, say amen here. If Jesus would have said, let her die, then a lot of people in the crowd would say, Jesus is a hypocrite because he's always going around telling us to love, be merciful, and forgiving to each other. But if he said, let her go, then there was part of the crowd that would say, Jesus is a lawbreaker and he condones adultery. And they could have brought him up on charges. So it seemed like a no-win situation unless you're the son of God. You see, ladies and gentlemen, every time somebody tried to, in the Gospels, embarrass Jesus, guess what happened? They're the ones who ended up getting embarrassed. And anybody, if anybody had the audacity to publicly debate Jesus, he always ate their lunch. Why? Because of his amazing wisdom. <clears throat> the Lord once said this. He said the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of who? Solomon, all right? So if you're new to the Bible, here's Jesus, first century AD. Rewind a thousand years. You got the son of David. His name is Solomon. He's very green. He's young. He's now the king. And he got, says, God, please give me wisdom. And God gives him so much wisdom that he's the wisest man at that time on earth. And Jesus says the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But get this. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Who is Jesus talking about? Himself. And you're gonna see his wisdom now in this situation. All right, so teacher! Arrogant, looking down their noses. Teacher! This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. How did Jesus respond? Look at the second half of verse six. He bent down. Now, we don't know the, where, what the woman was doing right now. We do know she's probably trembling, scared to death. She thinks she's gonna die. Her eyes are probably closed, closed. And maybe if they drug her, she's laying in the dirt. So I like to think that what is Jesus doing here? He's kneeling down to identify with her. They're all uppity, self-righteous, sticking their chests out, looking down their noses, and Jesus gets on her level. And then what does he do? He starts to write in the dirt. Now, the question that not millions, but billions with a B have asked for 2,000 years is what in the world did Jesus write? By the way, did you know that right now um, in our world, over two billion people profess to be Christians. I'm not saying all of them are born again Christians, but I'm saying though is over, well over two billion people right now um, profess Christianity as their religion. And so we're talking about billions of people for 2,000 years who've read this. They're wondering what in the world did Jesus write in the dirt? Okay, so you guys ready for the answer? Drum roll. Here's the answer. We don't know. We have no idea. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us, right? So were the Bible silent? You know, we should be silent, but it's kind of fun every once in a while to maybe take a stab at it and guess what he wrote in the dirt. Lots of people have done that. 
I can't wait to get to heaven one day and watch the replay of the movie. Maybe you can join me, we'll have some popcorn, we'll see what he wrote in the dirt, right? But what did he write? Well, perhaps he wrote the sins of some of the religious leaders. Perhaps he wrote the names of some of their mistresses. Perhaps he wrote the names of some of their rendezvous locations. Can you imagine Jesus writing Hilton? (laughs) Perhaps he wrote the words, set up. And perhaps he wrote the name of the man who committed adultery. Again, where's he at? Because he's not there, we're not sure, but he was probably in on it. And so these guys, man, they thought their scheme was a secret that would never be found out. But how many of you guys know we cannot keep secrets from God? You just can't. Um, Last Thursday was a special day in the life of our ministry because our school is a ministry of our local church. And so on Thursday, we welcome back the faculty and staff of Calvary Christian Academy. By the way, they now have more employees on the school side than we have on the church side. Um, But nonetheless, they came, and uh, I got to address all of them on Thursday. And I was sharing with them how important it is that we study the attributes of God. So I got my bachelor's in biblical studies like a really long time ago. And then I got a master's degree in psychology and counseling a really long time ago. But then last October, the Lord helped me finish a master's degree in theology. And I'm so glad that I took the time to get that degree. And here's why. Because we spent a lot of time studying um, in, in that degree field the attributes of God. And here's, here's what happens. When you study the attributes of God, your view of God begins to grow and grow and grow. And you know what happens at the same time? Your problems become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so we can't hide anything from God. You know why? Because God is omni from the Latin all, omniscient. omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. And not only that, he's omnipotent present. What does that mean? That means that he's everywhere. Can't hide anything from him. As an omnipresent God, what does that mean? That means he's transcendent above and beyond and distinct from his space-time material universe. As we learned from Dr. Frank last week, he's spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. He transcends the universe, but he's also eminent Not imminent, like the imminent rapture, but eminent in the space-time material universe. He's not part of the material. We're not pantheists. No, he's distinct from his creation. And by the way, his creation was ex nihilo, out of nothing. How powerful is our God? But he is everywhere. And so if he's all-knowing and if he's all-seeing, then ladies and gentlemen, if you happen to have a secret sin in your life, it really isn't secret. And so if he knows it and if he sees it, you should First John 1, 9 it. <laughs> what does that mean? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just admit it and quit it. Why? Because our sin offends a beautiful, holy God who knit us together in our mother's wombs. And our sin hurts us and hurts people. Got a lot more to say about that here in a little while. But apparently, back to the story, these guys hadn't yet noticed what Jesus was writing in the dirt. So in their zeal, they keep badgering Jesus. They keep asking Jesus until finally, look at verse seven, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first. And I want you guys, please say those two words. The first, go ahead. Those two words are the key to interpreting this verse correctly. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now here's what the Lord was not saying. He was not saying, if you are sinless, then you can be the first to stone her. It's not what he was saying at all. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. If 
humans had to be sinless in order to make judgments about various issues, every single judge in the world would have to turn in his or her gavel. The Lord isn't saying you're not to make judgments. We have to make sound judgments in our lives. How many of you guys are thankful for our police officers? I know I am. I'll clap with you right now. Praise the Lord, right? And so thank God they're there and they're making judgments. Why? To protect us. We, th- we thank God for our legal system. We thank God for, for law and order. So Jesus isn't saying if you're sinless, you can ca- uh, cast the first stone. What he's doing is he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 17. All right, so look at what, it, what he's referring to. Old covenant, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And here it is. The hand of the witness shall, please shout out the next two words, against him to put him to death. So the guy who actually saw it is to be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So Jesus stands up. He looks these guys in the eye and he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And so here's the inferred question. It's not what Jesus said, but he's clearly inferring this question to the religious leaders. And that is this. Are you guys actually willing to be the first to stone this woman after the scheme you've been involved in? Can you honestly say that you are without sin in this matter after being part of this whole setup? That's what's going on in your Bibles. And it's kind of like, whoa. You ever see the face of a kid with his hand in a cookie jar before dinner who gets caught? It's kind of like, that's the religious leader's facial expressions right now. They can't believe it. Their attitude before was, oh man, we finally got him. And now, it's just the opposite. Look at verse eight. And once more, he bent down, place of humility. And he wrote on the ground. I think personally, this is my opinion, this is not the Bible. I think personally, he's now writing in larger letters So they see it. Verse nine. But when they heard it, heard what? What he just said in verse seven. They went away (laughs) one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I think by this point, the religious leaders figured out what he's writing on the ground. And all of a sudden, the older guys are like, whoa, look at the time. Hey, I got an appointment. I'll see you guys later. And the old guys left. And then the younger guys caught on, and they left as well. And see, if the lady, we're not sure, but if her eyes were closed because she's so scared, what is she hearing? Whether her eyes were open or closed, what is she hearing? She's hearing bump, 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 bump. She opens her eyes, and there's the smiling face of Jesus. And all the pompous, smug, self-righteous, legalistic, religious leaders are gone. I love what D.A. Carson wrote about this. He said, those who had come to shame Jesus now left in shame. I would add to that, those who came to shame the woman now left in shame. Did you guys know that Jesus does not want us to live our lives in shame? Did you know that Jesus did not come to curse us? He came to cure us. Did you know that Jesus does not want to condemn us? He wants to save us. You see, every once in a while, we gotta remind ourselves of that verse that follows the most popular verse in the Bible. John three seventeen. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be, what's the word there? Saved. That's why we use that word so much here in this local church, because it's biblical. It's in the gospels. It's in the letters. Saved. It's a good word. You should use it. There's two types of people in the world, saved and unsaved. And so why did Jesus come? To curse us? To condemn us? No, he came to save us. How? Through him. (laughs) That means that he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Listen, that includes the people you don't like. That includes the people who have offended you. That includes, ladies and gentlemen, the people who don't agree with you politically. Don't stone me for saying that. But it's true. Everybody needs Jesus, whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent. Listen, that's, that's down here in importance. We need Christ. We need him to be our king. We need to actually follow his teachings and have his heart, his heart of compassion, his heart of love, his heart of forgiveness. And so soon Jesus Christ is gonna hang on a Roman cross And I always try to throw the gospel into every single message because I know that there's people that don't have a personal relationship with the Lord, whether they're in this room or whether they're watching. So hey, here's the gospel right here. Soon, Jesus Christ is going to hang on a Roman cross and he is going to bear the sins of this woman and our sins as well on that cross. Why? Because the penalty of sin is, help me out, death. What is death? Annihilation? You close your eyes and lights out, that's it? No. That's not what Jesus taught. He knows a lot about the matter. Death, in the physical sense, is separation. When you die, your soul is separated from your corpse. When you take your last breath, you're going to see your corpse as you go. Question is, where are you going? And death, in the spiritual sense, is not annihilation, it's separation. Separation from a holy God forever in a place called hell. That's spiritual death. But how many of you are thankful that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes personal trust in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So what did God do? This is mind-blowing. I don't get why people have a problem with Christianity. What did God do? He came and he punished himself in your place and in my place. God became man. He entered time and space through a virgin's womb. He clothed himself in humanity, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, went to a Roman cross. They didn't have to force his arms down. He willingly did this. Why? You were on his mind and he wants to be with you forever. That's why. And he hung on the cross and he bled out and he died. He bore this woman's death penalty. That's why you'll see here in a little while, he could say, neither do I condemn you. God's not a Santa Claus in the sky who winks at sin. No, he is a just God and he took that woman's death penalty and he took your death penalty and he took my death penalty on the cross. Again, why? Here's why. If you're listening here, say amen here. Here's why. This is so beautiful because God is just. Nothing can, can be done about that. He is just just. And you know what else he is? God is love. And there's nothing that can be done about that. God is love. And you know what else? God is immutable. That means he can't change. So nothing's gonna change this and nothing's gonna change this. So how do you reconcile the two? How do you reconcile God's justice, the ways of sin is death, and God's mercy and love? Here's how. His justice and his mercy kissed on the cross. That's how. Jesus Christ, listen to this. Jesus Christ satisfied God's justice. Why? He bore our sins and he died in our place. Painful. Propitiation. God says, I'm satisfied. The sin debt has been paid by my son. And now his love and mercy, he extends salvation to those who will 
turn to him in genuine repentance and faith, receiving him as the Savior and Lord of their lives. By dying for our sins, he paid the full price of our redemption. By rising from the dead, he proved his payment was efficacious. Paul put it this way. God shows his love toward us. How many of you guys are grateful that he's loving? He shows his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified. What does that word mean? It means declared righteous. I praise God for the Reformation and I praise God, God for a man named Philip Melanchthon who was Martin Luther's protege who clearly defined the word justified from the Bible. It means declare righteous. It's not our self-righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. So talking to believers, therefore we have now been declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved, there's that word again, by him, Jesus, from the wrath of God. If that makes you happy, put your hands together, let God know how grateful you are. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, you guys finish the last three words. Okay, so it's very clear, right? that Jesus was not soft on sin. It's very clear, he just told her, leave your lifestyle of sin, go and sin no more. Why? Two reasons I've already told you. One is our sin offends a beautiful holy God who knit us together in our mother's womb, who created us and sustains us. Sin offends him, but also sin hurts us and it hurts people. So for the rest of our time together, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get really, really practical. We're gonna apply this to our lives and I'm gonna share quickly with you four ways to be victorious over sin in your life. All right, so how can we overcome sin? You're gonna wanna take notes. You're gonna wanna pull out your phone, take pictures. Uh, I'm gonna get super, super practical here. How do we overcome sin in our lives? Number one, we magnify the consequences. We magnify the consequences. Did you guys know that God has said in his word there will be consequences for our sin? The apostle Paul makes it very clear. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. What does that mean? You reap what you sow. It's the law of life. What does that mean? It means you harvest what you plant. So you and I should be very, very careful as to what seeds that we're planting every day in our lives because that seed is gonna germinate, that seed is gonna grow for good or bad. Am I making sense to you guys? Okay, so life is like farming, but I don't wanna talk about farming. I wanna talk about fishing. Okay, so in the illustration of fishing that I'm gonna give you right now, the devil is the fisherman. You and I are the fish. And what's he trying to do? He's trying to get us to take his bait and hook us and reel us to a place that we don't wanna go so he can have us for lunch. Therefore, before we bite, we gotta consider the hook. Okay, and so when that beautiful shiny lure is wiggling before the fish, what's that fish thinking? That fish is thinking, mmm, Mm, that looks so good. That looks so yummy. And what does a fish do? Chomp. Mmm, that tastes good for about one second. And all of a sudden, there's a hook in his mouth. And the next thing you know, he's being pulled up to a place he does not want to go. And later in the day, he's slabbed down on someone's lunch plate. Bathsheba, 
looked so good to David as he was taking it easy on the rooftop of his palace. By the way, if you go with us to Israel, we'll take you to that palace. He's taking it easy, right? And she looks so good. And what's David thinking? He's thinking, mm, mm, man, wow. I don't have to tell you the whole story. You know the whole story. What did David do? Chomp. And what happens? She gets pregnant. And what does he do? He freaks. And the next thing you know, he's telling Joab, eliminate her husband on the battlefield, which was successful. What do you call that? You call that murder. And David's a man after God's own heart. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm preaching to everybody here. Because all of us are capable of some really bad things. And so what happens? You can answer this question. Did God forgive David, yes or no? Yeah, he repented, the Lord forgave him, but he still had to reap what he had sown in this life. And it hurt, and it hurt really bad. Listen, if you're driving recklessly on I-95, going 110 miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic, and your car turns over and somehow you survive that crash but you lose your arm. Later on when you come to and you pray, Lord, I was such an idiot, please forgive me for driving like that. I'm so, so sorry, I'm so glad I didn't hurt anybody. God, please forgive me. Is God gonna forgive you, yes or no? Yes, Yes. but guess what? He's not gonna give you your arm back. There's consequences. Yes, thank you for telling me that. You'll get your arm back at the resurrection. Good job. <laughs> Isn't God good? Right? But, but here's the thing. There are consequences in this life. What was the consequences for David's sin? Um, the child that was conceived the night of the affair died. The sword never left his house. That's what God said in 2 Samuel 12. And that's exactly what happened. His son Absalom, how much does this hurt? Your own flesh and blood, your boy, committed treason against David and was later killed in battle. Consider the consequences if we choose to commit sexual immorality. Listen, there's pain and confusion for our spouse. You really wanna do that? There's pain and confusion for your kids. You really want to hurt those little ones? There's a possible STD. There's public exposure and shame, and I would add to that a big black eye for the church. I think we've got enough black eyes lately, by the way. A significant blow to your character and reputation, child support, and possibly alimony payments, and you could probably add another five. The question we gotta ask ourselves is, as you look at that list, is it worth it? And by the way, it's a good idea to ask yourself, is it worth it before that lure is dangled before you? Before the temptation comes. How can we overcome sin? Number two, we deal with it in the head before it enters the heart. You see, it's so much easier to deal with sin or potential sin when it's in your head than after it's gone down into your heart. Because if you choose to dwell, right, on that thought, that's exactly what's gonna happen. It's gonna go from your head to your heart and eventually it's gonna become a desire and maybe even a strong desire. Isn't this what James said? James said this, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by whose desire? His own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so here's the progression, the sad progression. None of us has to even go down this road, but here's what often happens in so many people's lives. They have a wrong thought. How many of you guys ever had a wrong thought? Please raise your hand. I'm waiting until every hand's up. (laughs) Please don't be self-righteous. Please raise your hand. I'm serious, please raise your hand if you ever had a wrong thought in your head. Just wanna make sure you're all with me. Okay, now, it's so much easier if you just deal with it right then. But here's what people do. They dwell on it. They give themselves permission to keep thinking about it. And now what happens? It goes down and it becomes a desire. 
And if they keep dwelling on it, now all of a sudden it becomes a strong desire. The heart is involved. And then what happens? They act out on it. And then maybe they keep acting out on it. And then what happens is it becomes a stronghold in their lives. And there's a big mess everywhere. It's not like a Hollywood scene where everybody's happy after committing immorality. That's not life. There's a mess. How many of you guys know you throw a rock in a pond, there's a ripple. And not just your life is affected, but other people's lives are affected. There's a mess. And for some people, last word, there's physical death. Okay, so what should we do? It's so simple, right? Deal with it when it's just a thought. It's easy right here. What did Martin Luther say? He said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. Right? You can't stop that wrong thought. You can't stop a fleeting thought from just kind of going into your head, just like you can't stop birds from flying over your head. But what are you guys gonna do if a bird lands in your hair and starts building a nest? I know what you're gonna do. You're gonna say, shoo! So what should we do when we get that thought? Shoo, depraved thought. What should we do? Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ so you don't go down that road. And then after you say shoo to that depraved thought, please hear me, you got to replace that thought with something wholesome. Otherwise, that bird's coming back. Number three, how do we overcome sin? Walk in the Spirit. Here's your power source. One of the reasons the Holy Spirit was given to us is so that we could live, have power to live the victorious Christian life. Again, what more can God do? Jesus Christ dies on a cross, pays for our sins, rises from the dead, and when he goes up, he sends the Spirit down to us. What more can you do? And so the Holy Spirit of God, what does he do? He indwells us, but he also empowers us as we yield to him. So if we're gonna overcome sin, we gotta learn to walk in the Spirit. Paul said it. He said, walk in the Spirit, and here's the promise of God. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Oh, pastor, the devil made me do it. Give me a break, please. Oh, pastor, I was just so in love. I had to. I couldn't help myself. Please, stop kidding yourself. Here's the promise of God right here. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is very powerful. That's why. And when you're walking with him, you have a relationship with him. And what are you doing? What you're doing is that you're open and you're receptive, right, to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But not only does he lead you or tell you to do certain things, but he also gives you the power to go that way and to do whatever he's leading you to do. And so it all starts in your prayer closet. How many times have you heard the pastors of this church Say this, a million? You know, this is what we gotta do. This is what I gotta do. We gotta get with the Lord. We gotta meditate on his word. We gotta put on the headphones and worship him in spirit and truth. We gotta pray for strength and power and wisdom and love. And he will, he will, will, will give us power, supernatural power to live the victorious Christian life so that when that lure is dangling, listen, we can actually say, not now and not in a million years, see you later. I'm not doing that. Last point, how do we overcome sin? We get the tools that we need. Okay, so what does that mean? What do I mean by get the tools that we need? Well, here's some ideas. You may want to take a picture. Use an internet filter for all your devices. Now, now here's just to be really raw with you guys. Listen, pornography is a plague in the church. It's, it's just ruining guys' lives. And by the way, women too. And so if this is a problem in your life, right, when I was growing up, um, the house that we rented, I was, this is, oh my goodness, this is like 68. I'm like two years old. My mom and dad, before they bought the house that uh, my mom is still living in, 
they rented this house just for like six months and it's, it was roach infested. And when you turn on the lights in the middle of the night in the kitchen, the roaches would flee. You know why I put that on the screen, guys and ladies? So the roaches will get out of your life. It's because I wanna help you. So bring it to the light. Use an internet filter for all your devices. There's actually um, um, programs out there that will alert an accountability partner of the site that you just went to. You say, oh, come on, really? Yeah, really. Don't view questionable TV, movies, or videos. I, I just don't get it in our culture today. Since when did it be okay to allow nudity to flow into your house through movies or videos? When, since when did that become okay? Because we're progressive Christians? Listen, I'm not a progressive Christian. I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and I believe the kindness of God should lead us to repentance, and therefore, so I don't um, dishonor God, and so I don't hurt myself or my kids, or um, they're grown now, but at the time, or my wife. Listen, I'm the head of the home spiritually. Guys, you're the head of the home spiritually. Don't let that garbage into your home. Just don't do it. Admit it and quit it. Find an accountability partner. And you need to know this about your pastor. I have men in my life I'm accountable to. One of them is gonna Zoom with me this Tuesday afternoon. And I've given him permission to ask me any question at any time. And so that question, those questions may come this Tuesday to your pastor. Why? Because you need to know that I have a board of directors and I am accountable to people in my life. That's important. Well, who do you have in your life? Join a discipleship environment or group. Why? Why is that important? Here's why community is important. Because you have the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, then you have these under shepherds called pastors and elders, and then you have the flock called the sheep. But if somebody who's a sheep wants to go way out here, away from community, what's gonna happen? They're gonna get picked off. This is why we have groups. This is why we have Calvary classes. And so join a discipleship environment, and I texted Pastor Andrew earlier, and he said that there is gonna be, I think it's called Battle Cry for Purity uh, group this fall, and so you can check us out later for that. Read a book that deals with your problem area and get Christian counseling. Don't be a lone ranger. Don't say, oh, I can do it on my own. Listen, there's been times in my life where it gets a little overwhelming, and I've gone, I'll admit it, I have no problem admitting it, I've gone to Christian counseling. Is that a sign of weakness? No, it's just smart. Because we need community. We need help. And you can't do it on your own. All right, in closing, Jesus was so kind not to condemn this woman. And his kindness was meant to lead her to repentance, Romans 2, 4. And so can we do the same thing? Can we let God's kindness lead us to repentance as well?